Okay, let's get started. Uh, I'm Dan Rundy. I hold the Schreier Chair here at CSIS. I'm a Senior Vice President. Uh, we're having a launch event for a report called Innovation in Guarantees for Development. Uh, it's here. Clear your calendar. Don't make it a Netflix night. You got to read this thing. Um, this has got to be, um, I really want to thank Ramina Bandura and uh, Sundar Ramanajan. Um, this is probably the report that's gotten the most outside readers. We had at least 10 outside commentators and readers. It's a very complicated and technical set of issues. We tried to make this accessible both to the folks who really get in the weeds, but also make this accessible to um, folks who aren't practitioners and try and get this accessible to earth people. <clears throat> I think <clears throat> the question, why does this matter? Why, why is this? It's a very obscure, for the folks who are the practitioners, they quickly break into really oddball, really arcane lingo. Some of it is, is to say, I'm in the club, and I know the, the lingo, but some of it is because it's super complicated. But why does this matter? Why does guarantees matter? Why would C my friends at CDC help us with this? And I want to thank Patty Carter. I want to thank Colin Buckley. I think CDC, the, the British DFI, is really one of the greatest forces of good in the world today. I'm very grateful that... Um, the, our, our friends in the United Kingdom would entrust us with this work. But why would this, why does this topic matter? We have a billions to trillions agenda. If you wanna, if you wanna solve global poverty, you wanna solve uh, the challenges that come with that, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of our security challenges come from kind of ungoverned spaces. The best national security solution is a job. The best challenges for the youth bulge is a job. If you're worried about root causes of migration, you need jobs, we need to grow the private sector economy. We have to do other things. We need to have the rule of law. We gotta have, you know, people, everyone needs to be treated fairly. We need clean water and clean air. We need, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, so but a big chunk of the solving these problems requires the private sector. So one of the holy grails has been, how do we, some of the conversation has been recently about, if we could just get more global pension fund money in and we could make them comfortable, <clears throat> We could, we could look at the 1% of all that number, it's this multiples of all ODA. That's true. But I think the other thing to think about is, this isn't your grandparents' developing world. It's richer, freer, and more capable. And my view is, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of countries where there's, there's trillions in dollars of local capital. So we need to also be thinking about how do we unlock local capital, not just the um, CalPERS pension fund or the, you know, the Fidelity pension fund. I know that's often talked about. We need to think about local capital. The final point I want to make is um, there's a lot of things that have been, th th this, this topic is not new. Um, the problem is, is that if you're an investment officer in one of these places or if you're an ambitious CEO in one of these organizations, do you want to come to the bank fund meetings and say I did my 300th DCA guarantee or do I want to say I created this newfangled shiny object and look at me. So if I'm the investment officer, I'm incentivized for the second thing, not the first. So my other message is, is a lot of this is about scaling up stuff we've already, we're already knowing about and they're talked about in this thing. There are some things that we could kind of plus up and try, but some of this is about just growing stuff that's already been done. So I think my colleagues have really succeeded. Uh, I'm really pleased uh, that UNDP um, is here. I'm very grateful that Luis Felipe Lopez Calva, who's the regional director for Latin America and the Caribbean, he's an assistant secretary general.
but has had a life. He's an academic, he's an economist, um, had a life at the World Bank Group and was the lead author of the World Development Report 2017 on Governance and the Law. Uh, I'm really pleased he's here. So I'm going to ask Luis Felipe Lopez Calva to come on up. Thank you. Please welcome him. I think, uh, good morning, everybody. Thank you very much, Dan, for the introduction. I think you have established uh, the, the, um, the main themes already. And uh, I wanted to also um, thank uh, the CSIS uh, for the invitation, for UNDP. This is a, uh, an agenda that is growing in, in, in importance, so it is very important for us to be in, this, in these conversations. And uh, also I wish to really um, uh, congratulate uh, the team that produced this uh, very, very uh, important report, and it will be a reference for all of us who work in this area. Uh, the findings and, and recommendations of, uh, of uh, uh, emanating from this report uh, provide an import, important insights on how the international development finance community can help unlock the challenges of financing for sus uh, the sustainable development goals that, as you know, are um, the political document that legitimize uh, the work we do as a UN system on the development uh, side. Uh, and this is particularly important uh, for uh, fragile and conflict-impacted uh, countries. We had a few slides, I don't know if we're going to be able to put them up, but uh, um, uh, if possible. So allow me to uh, make a few points about the sustainable uh, development goals. We have uh, argued that for, uh, for, for decades, um, the, um, the world has, has been trying to um, to move from an equilibrium based on ideology, we say, to an equilibrium uh, based on, on ideals. And the SDGs, in a way, are the political, uh, give the political legitimacy uh, to everybody in every context uh, in the world to uh, pursue certain uh, social goals uh, precisely uh, because all uh, 193 countries have uh, signed uh, this document. So, uh, it is very important that the collective efforts we need to try to finance uh, the, the achievement of these, of these goals, particularly in these developed countries. Uh, that is the, the main, one of the main uh, issues for today's discussion. Um, I will conclude uh, uh, with a couple of points that I think can benefit also uh, the collective attention uh, of the development finance community to strengthen our collective efforts to help uh, achieve the SDGs for everyone, not leaving any country, any man or woman or child behind. Uh, the 2030 Agenda um, is about achieving economic growth and poverty reduction that does not come at the expense of the environmental sustainability. The SDGs provide us with a necessary global framework to capture the benefits and trade-offs of sustainable development. Many countries are already uh, integrating the SDGs into their future development plans, uh, new technologies, too, are enabling systemic changes uh, like Bitcoin, blockchain technologies, for example, that can contribute to systemic transformation uh, through changes in global payment systems, supply chain, chain management, digital identities, and access, access to finance. We in UNDP try to actually uh, help governments take advantage of all uh, these innovations. However, these initiatives are not yet impacting on uh, the, the financial uh, uh, scale. The audience uh, knows too well that the financing path 
to the SDGs will not be, will not be through official development assistance budgets uh, of the uh, donors. The scale and the ambition of the SDGs are much bigger and the financing challenges of least developed countries are far more complex. There is no shortage of capital uh, uh, in the global economy. We were just discussing that uh, in, the, in the previous meeting. Uh, however, we need the channels through which the finance uh, uh, can be channeled to uh, where the needs are. Indeed, many investors and private sector companies are leading the way and investing in the SDGs on their innovative categories like sustainable finance. The total impact investment portfolio is an estimated 114 billion with 26% growth in commitments uh, this year alone. Despite uh, uh, these uh, signs of progress, Experience with blended finance, for example, suggests that they tend to benefit middle-income countries mainly and do not reach uh, the least developed countries and fragile states. UN Capital Development Fund in 2019 uh, issued a, a report on least developed countries and shows that out of the 81.1 billion in additional private capital mobilized through blending uh, between 2012 and 2015, only 7% went to LDCs, with the rest going to middle-income countries. This is because the investment climate remains more challenging and markets smaller and less stable in LDCs, making it harder to attract private capital to these countries. These conditions are unlikely to change significantly in the short term. That leads me to the second point I want to make. Uh, financing for the SDGs, um, financing for the SDGs is a more, more systemic and much deeper issue than just closing a financial gap. The fundamental challenge is about effective governance and about how public and private actors interact uh, to, uh, to allocate resources. This is why uh, uh, across a range of development settings, including fragile conflict settings, UNDP is supporting governments not only to mobilize capital, but to make use of their public government capital more efficiently to crowd in the necessary private investments. The level of de-risking that is needed in this context is much higher and uh, the scale uh, of the guarantees uh, may be actually in some cases uh, disproportionate. For many years, UNDP has been assisting countries to link their national development priorities with their budgets. With the SDG challenge, we have uh, uh, updated the game. Now we are helping over 35 countries in implementing development uh, finance assessments to help them overcome the narrow focus on public resources and to open the financing dialogue to broader range of stakeholders across government, the private sector, and financial institutions, development partners, and other non-state um, uh, stakeholders. We also work to help countries mobilize their domestic resources towards the SDGs. Since 2015, we have collaborated with the OECD on tax inspectors without borders initiative in 36 countries, resulting in 470 million increase in tax collection uh, in developed countries. In developing countries. 
uh, UNDP allocates more than 60% of its institutional resources to LDCs. More importantly, we support 45 LDCs to implement over 200 projects valued at $851 million that leverage the resources of the Green Climate Fund, the Global Environment Fund, the Adaptation Fund, and other uh, cost-shared funds. In other words, we are the, in the business of bringing financing for some of the key SDG targets to some of the most ch challenging contexts. We are also house of the UN Capital Development Fund, with whom we share the strategic mission of bringing financing to local subnational levels, including through UNCDF's innovative platform for investment in least developed countries. Some of our joint projects with UNCDF include subnational infrastructure investment in Lao PDR, where we leveraged GEF financing for local administrations to carry out small-scale rural infrastructure and disaster preparedness investments, or the Pacific Islands, uh, the Pacific Financial Inclusion Program, which brings affordable financial services to the last mile beneficiaries and increase the number of low-income customers who use financial services. Or in Ethiopia, where we created a mechanism, again with GEF project, to co-invest in early stage innovate innovators for clean energy producers. So in closing, I turn now to bilateral development finance institutions. Based on our experience in working with governments and business partners in directing fin financing towards the LDGs, we repeatedly see several issues arising. First, is the space of technical assistance, non-financial services for end users, and the ever-recurring issue of pipeline development. In, de in deliberating how to most effectively help direct financing towards SDG achievement, we urge our development finance partners, both multilateral and bilateral, to consider the funding gaps for intermediaries to develop pipeline of bankable projects and to help build the ecosystem for this much, um, uh, this uh, much needed industry. There are some strong examples where UNDP designed and delivered different types of technical assistance for pipeline generation, including identifying and growing companies that DFIs can invest in with a clear development impact and where we provided direct support to entrepreneurs to reduce the risk of default. The Malawi Innovation Challenge Fund is one such example, and our partnership with Denmark in the SDG Accelerator for uh, small and medium enterprises is another. The second area of, uh, is impact management. Most of you represent institutions that have sophisticated systems for evaluation and impact measurement. And for some private investors, the SDGs are providing a useful and comprehensive framework for designing and measuring the impact of their sustainable investment strategies. However, the absence of agreed-upon global standards for what constitutes SDG-enabling investment impedes SDG alignment uh, be aligned to, to these investments. SDG Impact is the UNDP flagship initiative that addresses this challenge. We launched SDG Impact at the end of last year and since then developed the SDG Impact Practice Standards and SDG Investor Maps to inform and encourage SDG-enabling investment practice, starting in 11 pilot countries this year. 
Again, UNDP is open for partnership with the development finance community for certification and sealing of investments as SDG enabling. I thank you for the, the, again for the opportunity uh, to address uh, this important audience today. On behalf of the United Nations Development Programme and the UN Development System, I welcome the findings and recommendations of this report and trust that it will provide the much-needed fresh look at the opportunities development finance institutions can unleash towards the SDGs. I congratulate the authors of this report, Romina Bandura and Sundar Ramanujam, and I thank Dan, Dan and Paddy Carter uh, for their leadership in this project. Thank you very much. Good morning. Thank you, Assistant Secretary General Lopez Calva, and thank you all for joining us this morning. My name is Sundar Ramanujam, and I'm a research associate at the Project on Prosperity and Development here at CSIS. Again, we want to thank the CDC Group and Patty Carter for their generous support and partnership on this research. Before we transition to what seems to be a promising discussion among our panel of experts, I wanted to take a few moments and walk us through the report and share some of the highlights. So we started this project because there is an increased push among donor countries to help mobilize private investments into developing countries. We recognize that instruments such as guarantees could do more in this regard but are underutilized. Most of the work that has been done, uh, has been done on increasing the use of guarantees for development focused on multilateral development banks, MDBs, and targeted upper middle income countries. We focus our research on bilateral institutions such as aid agencies and DFIs, and saw that they can play a key role and be more innovative in the use of guarantees vis-a-vis -vis MDBs. We argue that this is so because bilaterals enjoy a higher risk appetite. They also have a simplified governance structure and are relatively smaller in size, giving them more flexibility to respond to an evolving development landscape. Our study showed that there were many gaps in the use of guarantees. For instance, they are underutilized by MDBs. In 2018, guarantees were only 8% of EBRD commitments, almost 4% of IFC commitments, and just about 3% of IBRD commitments. Second, a lot of private capital that was mobilized by guarantees came from the OECD countries, but not much from domestic pools like national savings. Guarantees largely targeted energy and financial services, while critical sectors like infrastructure and social sectors like health and education were left underrepresented. Finally, guarantees have also mobilized a lot of capital in middle-income countries, but not so much in low-income and lower-middle-income countries. And there are challenges too that explain why that is the case. Many of these countries do not always have the right macro-fundamentals or political institutions in place. They lack access to finance and pose higher risk to returns on investments. Lastly, they also lack a pipeline of bankable projects that could appeal to investors. To carry out our research on this topic, we undertook a qualitative approach that involved two roundtables, over a dozen expert interviews, and significant desk research, which resulted in this final report. So let's take a moment to understand what guarantees are. They, simply put, they are a legal agreement between a lender and a borrower that ensures that in the event of a non-payment, the guarantor pays part or the entire amount due on a loan or any other financial obligation. 
While promising, guarantees cannot be treated as a silver bullet for all our development finance challenges. In the right context, guarantees improve the financing conditions for the borrower, give them longer tenors for borrowing and better rates. Project developers can also use guarantees to transfer the risk of non-payment and facilitate project implementation and completion. Guarantees um, can mobilize more private capital per dollar invested rather than direct lending or equity investments. And lastly, guarantees can help strengthen domestic bond markets and can be used to back municipal and corporate bonds that are being issued. At the same time, guarantees are limited in what they can achieve. They cannot be a quick and easy fix for weak and legal political environments. We will still need countries to invest significantly in a robust judicial system, independent central banks, and transparent legal and tax codes. Guarantees are also more difficult to structure compared to their development finance counterparts, like grants and loans, making, it, making the latter more preferable for borrowers. Guarantees can also not solve problems posed by poorly structured projects. If a highway project is constructed, in a low traffic region that yields low toll revenue, a guarantee cannot be used to change the lack of market demand and turn it into a profit-making venture. Lastly, guarantees can also create a moral hazard in certain situations. They can wrongly incentivize borrowers to take on excessive risks. They can also wrongly incentivize lenders to shirk the responsibility of doing due diligence on a deal. Let me quickly walk us through the five recommendations uh, before transitioning. Um, so having mapped out the gaps and challenges, our report makes five recommendations for innovations in the guarantee space. First, we recommend that specialized guarantee providers like private monoline insurers, who were the largest guarantors of municipal debt up until 2008, can be supported by DFIs to help countries develop local capital markets and scale up their investment significantly. Second, bilaterals can use guarantees to back securitization and other structured finance products that allows lenders to recycle their capital more quickly. While slightly more expensive, there are two distinct applications for risk sharing that we highlight. First, DFIs can back securitizations in developing countries by directly issuing guarantees. And second, DFIs can help create a separate structured investment vehicle to finance development. For our third recommendation, we turn to a more theoretical idea derived from two papers, one by Basu and the other by Collier et al. This idea posits that DFI should use guarantees to help coordinate investments in frontier markets to develop investment clusters around critical sectors and support pioneering firms. Fourth, we recommend that sovereign governments issue guarantees against early stage risks and help create a, bank a pipeline of bankable projects. Here, DFIs and MDBs can support these national project development funds, not by directly issuing guarantees themselves, by but by complementing the sovereign government's efforts uh, through advisory services and technical assistance. Finally, in order to increase the scale and development impact of guarantees, M MDBs and DFIs could collaborate in challenging contexts. In our report, we do recognize some of the work that is already being done in this regard, including several high-level initiatives to exchange best practices, the ongoing support of specialized guarantee providers, and the development of the external investment plan by the European Union and the policy-based guarantees by the World Bank. Those are some of our key highlights. I do thank you for being a patient audience, and I hope you enjoy unpacking the details in our report. Uh, copies of it are available online. 
Uh, we will now transition to our panel discussion. Uh, may I ask Ambassador John Simon and the panelists to join us upstairs? <laughs> but still, he gives us voice. Yeah. <laughs> Hello? Yes. All right. Great. Thank you, Sundar. And thank you and uh, Romina for this really great report. Um, I really appreciate uh, Luis's comments to open. Oop. All right. I really appreciate Luis's comments to open up. Uh, we have a great report, a very great opening speaker, and now, as you'll see, a really fantastic panel. I have all their uh, 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 qualifications right here, but rather than have me waste time going through them, which is take about another 15, 20 minutes, we'll let them just speak and show you for themselves. Uh, why don't we start at the far right end, Patty, with you. Um, obviously, uh, CDC backed this work. Uh, hopefully, you got what you were looking for. Uh, can you tell, tell what, to start out why you were so interested in understanding uh, what the potential and, and, and potential pitfalls were for guarantees? Yeah, so I mean, I think we're all going to be familiar with the need to increase the quantity of investment in the countries where we are uh, operating. And for our shareholder, uh, DFID, that's not just about how CDC spends its capital, it's also about uh, generating knowledge and learning. So this is part of that uh, effort. And um, if you'd allow me, I, I also want to start by adding my thanks to the team that, that wrote this report because. Um, we gave them a really tough brief, which is to come up with some new ideas. And I used to be in the report writing business, not the uh, report commissioning business. And I would have uh, struggled with that one. I think they've done an amazing job, so thank you very much. Um, I, I want to move on to talking about something which struck me when we were um, listening to the roundtables that were part of this report, when we, had, we were talking to the market participants where these ideas came from. Uh, and. Um, the, the most uh, striking thing to me was that everybody was getting most excited about the prospect of, uh, it wasn't about getting dollars into uh, <laughs> developing countries, it was about um, local financial market development. And even then, it wasn't about getting money from one place into this deal, it was about increasing the capacity um, for markets to understand price and take risk. It was about learning by doing, it was about um, uh, ultimately generating the um, ability of local economies to uh, create and execute investment opportunities. And that is absolutely in line with how CDC thinks about mobilization. Because um, if you're not careful, you can sort of get the impression that the point of all this mobilization agenda is to take a certain amount of projects that exist and just try and wedge private money into them. That, that's not the point. The point is to increase the amount of stuff that's getting done. And at, at CDC, that means that we, we will sometimes use um, financial instruments to kind of uh, unlock investments that are close to being feasible but aren't quite there. But it's also equally important to us to um, partner with uh, corporations and strategic investors to create investment opportunities. And um, one of the um, 
recommendation in this, in this report to uh, work with uh, creating uh, local intermediaries that can do this is, is exactly in line with how the CDC is thinking about these things. And, you know, one of the other points that Sundar made is that guarantees seem to be underutilized relative to the other tools that are out there. Um, what do you see in this report that gives uh, the possibility of, 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 of utilizing guarantees more effectively going forward? Um, uh, so I think that uh, the, the, the I'm struggling. I'm, I'm worrying. I'm going to come back to the same answer I gave, which is about the uh, the local capacity thing. I mean, I think that is uh, that is really the key. I mean, some of these ideas here are, are very blue sky. I mean, I, I love the idea about using. Um, uh, guarantees to coordinate clusters of investments in, in, in fragile states. I mean, that, you could say that's a way of using guarantees more effectively. It's a, it's a heck of a task. I'm not sure who of us is in the ability to be that coordinator and be the person that uses guarantees to bring all these complementary investments together at the same time. So some of these ideas in here are like um, quite moonshot. You know, they could really be effective, but uh, uh, they're very ambitious. Um, and I just, if you'd allow me, I wanted to say one thing, which is about what Dan said. Um, about the fact that we don't always want to be innovating all the time and sometimes this is about just um, taking some things that work and, uh, and doing more of them. And uh, a little bit of talking CDC's own book here. We, what, a lot of what we do, risk-sharing facilities, trade finance, it's not in the report because it um, didn't come under the sort of innovation uh, brief that we gave uh, CSIS. But um, I just want to emphasize that there is a there's an awful lot of scope for us all to do more of those things. Uh, I was noticing yesterday on my phone this morning that a CDC has just signed a $75 million uh, risk-sharing agreement with Absa Bank in um, South Africa to uh, extend their ability to offer trade finance across Africa. So that we've got to remember that there is this uh, uh, just do more of what we're already doing. Yeah, I mean, I do think it is interesting because on the one hand, if you're going to use a guarantee that presupposes uh, 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 someone being guaranteed who has the capacity yes. to get the financing out there. On the other hand, what's attractive to me about guarantees and the, and the idea about using them, particularly in, in fragile states, is the big risk you often face in development finance is currency risk. And to the extent you can use guarantees, you often take that currency risk off the table, which I think we can discuss a little more. But going uh, to, this, to this point about using guarantees in the future, you, Mildred, will yeah. shortly be uh, sure. at a very brand new organization, yeah. one that now has beefed up guarantee capacity. How do you see using guarantees in ways that you haven't in the past, both from the perspective of the old overseas private investment corporation <laughs> and also from, and John, you'll be yep. able to talk sure. about I just, I just feel like I should ceremoniously hand you the key. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, uh, part of the just the, the to put build a full cycle to which many people in this room are, are well aware of was to transfer the development credit authority into uh, the new development finance corporation. The development credit authority was actually created by the the man to my left. So, um, uh, yeah. but how how do you see using this these these new capacities both from the perspective of the DFC and from the broader issue of. How do, we, how do we mobilize more capital with, with guarantees? And, and I know John will, will definitely have uh, a lot to contribute here, but I think, you know, the guarantee instrument is not new uh, for OPIC, and it's certainly not new for a DCA. I think what, what we're going to get the benefit of is the, the synergy um, between an organization that has 
uh, operated very significantly on the local level and using guarantees for local currency transactions and, and OPIC that has used its guarantee uh, more more readily, I think, on, on the dollar side. But but we have you know used some of our guarantee authority in recent years to backstop bond issuances or other types of financing, you know, toll road in Columbia, for example, that's all local currency uh, cost-based on the ground, and so it made sense to guarantee in local currency. And so that mismatch between the, the, the source of our funding and, um, and the, uh, the guarantee that we're issuing, you know, we've, we've handled that in a number of ways. Obviously, we have to have a cap. Uh, but in some cases, what we have what we have done is provided a buffer so that as the currencies move, um, the guarantee capacity you know can can absorb uh, some of that currency movement. But I think part of what we're going to to learn together uh, with the DCA team and and the OPIC team coming together as the the DFC is how to to take those long and rich histories and very successful histories and and figure out how we can cross fertilize um, and and have that local knowledge, that local presence, the team in the field, the local currency guarantee capability, and match that up with what OPIC has traditionally done. I, I mean, I think for, for me, um, really what, what we're all aiming for is, is greater efficiency and the ability to, to scale up. And so I, I think in terms of the recommendations in this report, uh, the idea of you know backing existing intermediaries and helping them scale up, that's hugely important because you know a lot of lessons have been learned and if success has been uh, achieved you know that's what we should be scaling as opposed to constantly thinking that we're going to start uh, from scratch with something brand new and I think it's it's a lesson that many um, many of us in the development community haven't haven't learned enough um, and, and then I think you know the other the other piece of it is by backstopping using the guarantee tool to backstop, intermediaries that already exist or structures that already uh, exist, what we're doing is, is ensuring that there is longevity and continuity over time because all of us in this room understand that priorities change for uh, public sector development institutions. And today we're all focused on one thing, tomorrow it might be something else. But if you're a private sector uh, entity that has been built up from the ground and gotten support, and then get to the, the place where you might even be able to graduate from all public sector to support uh, to the level of the private sector uh, playing that role via a guarantee initially. That's, that's hugely important from a sustainability standpoint. And I mean, you answered this a little bit in terms, in terms of saying, look, yeah. it's the focus on the existing intermediaries is one recommendation in the report that you see is yeah. very relevant to yeah. what you're looking at going yeah. forward. Are there any others? That. Yeah, I think the other the other thing that I think is 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 blessedly changing is our willingness to collaborate among each other in the DFI and the MDB community. And I think Exhibit A is the creation of the DFC and the fact that USAID and and OPIC had been in the same firmament, but the stars were not you know always aligned. And I think now they are. And so that is a, that's a huge uh, step forward. But even beyond what the DFC is going to be doing internally, the idea that uh, the new DFC is as a full-fledged uh, US development finance institution and with the Canadians and FinDev have joined up with the European development finance institutions to create the DFI Alliance. And we are talking to each other and working with each other in ways that were totally unknown a decade ago. Uh, we, we were a go-it-alone institution, and I think 
you know, because of the, uh, the, the, the imperative that's out there and the SDGs and everything else, uh, we, we understand that we cannot do it all alone and that's not how we're going to, to scale. So I think uh, the idea that we can work together is hugely important, you know, and that's not just on the origination side, but that's very important as we were hearing people say in terms of pipeline development. But even on the back end, once we're all invested in these transactions to make sure that our monitoring is more efficient, to make sure that the client experience um, is actually streamlined and, and works as well as it can so that we all know what we've uh, achieved from an, an impact standpoint. Well, that's a great segue to Joan. I mean, you run an organization that's built around trying to bring different parties together around development finance transactions. What do you see as a role in, in, in guarantees in terms of making that happen? And do you see them as a force multiplier relative to other instruments in terms of being able to uh, unite a lot of these disparate parties around a, a particular transaction or a particular initiative? Yeah, well, first of all, um, is this microphone on? Yeah. Okay, so first of all, since we're the smallest institution on the stage, uh, Convergence is the global network for blended finance. So we provide data intelligence and deal flow specifically around transactions that have concessional capital, whether it be from an official source or from a philanthropic source, mixed in with private sector capital for the explicit purpose of drawing more money into the SDGs. So that's what we're about. So we. Um, coming to the question of force multipliers, yes, of all of the blended finance structures that we see, the one that's most successful in um, mobilizing capital at scale is frankly the guarantee product. Let's remind ourselves first that a guarantee only exists if there is something to be exactly. guaranteed. So by definition, you are guaranteeing some private sector capital flow. So unlike any other pure uh, developmental intervention, you've just basically announced that you're in the business of pulling private sector money into a problem. Um, if you look at the stats, uh, the OECD put out a report that showed that something like 40% of all the private sector or commercial capital mobilized uh, in blended finance transactions was mobilized in transactions that had a guarantee in them. And that's something like $63.5 billion. Uh, our data at uh, Convergence shows that um, structures that have guarantees in them have by, been by far larger on average than under other blended finance transactions. So um, on the order, you know, about a third of structures that have a guarantee in them are over $250 million in size, as opposed to the average blended finance transaction, which is something like $65 million in size. So any way you look at it, guarantees are very powerful in terms of of um, dollars motivated to come to the table. So yeah, definitely a force multiplier. And on the other side of that, how concerned are you as sort of an industry-wide group about the other uh, issue that was raised in the report of moral hazard? That is, you know, if, if you have a lot of these public sector entities taking on a, a fair bit of risk, are we going to get bad, worse results as, as people do projects that aren't, aren't appropriately uh, um, uh, evaluated? Well, again, we, we operate in a very small slice of the universe called blended finance, and there the entire conversation is about off-ramps. Uh, but to have an off-ramp, you have to have a road. So uh, <laughs> if you don't have a highway, you have no exits. So the point of a guarantee program ought to be to introduce those who think the risk of something is very high to the transaction for the purpose, hopefully, of demonstrating that guess what? You overestimated the risk. So done well. When you do a partial guarantee, hopefully transaction number two in the series, just to be simplistic for a moment, 
has instead of a 50% guarantee, a 40% guarantee, so forth and so on. What you are betting on as a development actor providing a guarantee is that everybody else in the deal got it wrong. They're overestimating risk because that kind of transaction has not been seen before or that place has not been invested in before. And by providing that guarantee, you're taking that bet and hopefully showing the commercial parties in the transaction. You know, the guarantee, these guarantees are not being called, folks. Let's remember that. By and large, guarantees do not get called in any significant number, unless anybody yes, No, you're absolutely correct. correct. No. You're absolutely correct. Absolutely. So where perceived risk is higher than real risk, guarantees are really useful. As a development actor, you, you put your risk appetite on the table. And you say, I will, I'll take that bet. And the private sector parties, whoever they are, do their deal, hopefully never turn around and open up the guarantee document, and hopefully deal number two and three and four. <sighs> you see that off-ramp, but you've created the road. And actually, John, You've been doing this probably for longer than any of us on this on the stage. You helped create the, the whole product with the with the development it's credit authority. You're older than he is. <laughs> and look where it got me. <laughs> but, but I mean, I think the data um, Joan's talking about is actually something that certainly has been the, the experience of development credit authority. Can you talk a little bit about what the what the the history has been in guarantee, with guarantees and why they have had this uh, very low call rate, this 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 very low loss rate? I mean, there are some things I'll tell you and some things I'll keep secret. Uh, <laughs> we have ways of making you talk, John. Well, um, you know, a lot of times, and I'll say this up front, an institution does not want to call on the guarantee for a lot mm -hmm. of reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, so my suspicion is that some of the defaults are a little higher than we say they are. And... Uh, in fact, in some institutions, the best thing that's happened to them is to get that guarantee agreement. Whether they disperse, whether they collect on it is another issue. But that said, we know that utilization of these things have been pretty high. I mean, I, my, my data is old, but I think our average uh, utilization on every guarantee at USA was about 76% of the total amount guaranteed, which was quite a good number. Uh, it took a while to get on that ramp up. Uh, uh, I, two things I, I want to say, and I'll get to answering that question. One is, I wish the guarantee community had the same sort of institution that the blended finance uh, community has in convergence. Uh, creating an institution to track, uh, improve, and coordinate these kinds of things is a remarkable thing, I think, for which the Canadian government Absolutely. needs to be applauded. Absolutely. Because that, the existence of that kind of organization will uh, eliminate uh, sort of the uh, ready feeling to get distracted on the next thing. There's always somebody there to keep you focused. Um, when we began arguing about getting DCA authority within USAID, uh, moral hazard was the theme. No, we can't do this. You know, we had, uh, we had so many years of 100% guarantees on US dollar loans to countries. They keep getting renegotiated in Paris every year. So what good are they? Uh, and they're just, and then we get into these corporate welfare issues and all the other kinds of things. And so we, we dealt with that in the way we structured our guarantees. They were true risk sharing, they were priced, they were paid for, they were provisioned for in the budget, um, and it was a new approach to, to how, how you did these things. And we were religiously adhered to those things, despite all the temptations of, oh, 50% is not enough. Uh, or uh, we need 75% to go. And in our early days, as, 
as, as eager as we were to get this thing done, we walked away from so many, so many deals. Um, now, um, today, I'm not going to talk much about this transition because that's a mechanical issue and has a lot to do with implementation where uh, all the tricks lie in this business. How do you get it done? Yeah. With whom do you get it done? Uh, how often do you get it done? But I want to underscore a couple of things. Here's what I've seen evolve over the years. John did mention I've been in the years. I'm beginning to see more and more collaboration. I'm beginning to see more and more attempts to approach a scale. Yeah. Uh, Joan is dealing with that when she talked about her average blended deal. It's about 65 million, did you share? The average is 65, and the average deal with a guarantee, and it's yeah. well, a third of them are over yeah. 250. Yeah. yeah. The, the one thing I wanted to do before, before I left USAID, I never had the thing to do. I wanted to take all our authority and do one deal <laughs> in the country. I wanted to move a market. Uh, and I thought we could have done that, uh, but the way we were structured, we couldn't have done that. Um, I, I believe Patty and, and CDC ought to be commended because as they've been watching this, you know, Grantco wasn't born in our offices, but when they were thinking about it, we had somebody sitting in our office for six months. John was there at the time. Yeah, I remember they that They came in well. and they, they watched what we did. When the suite, when CEDA wanted to do a guarantee, they came to us, we wrote their legislation for them, we helped them with their operational things. When the African Development Bank wanted to help set up with the Danish government, the African Guarantee Fund, that too happened pretty much in our offices. So we knew we were doing something right. Um, and and these, all these organizations seem to be working quite well yes, these days. Absolutely. Um, I, and I think, here's what I believe, the future, syndication of guarantees. If we can do that, we can do some rather interesting stuff in municipal finance. We can do some interesting stuff in the enterprise finance field. And we could certainly do a lot with capital markets. Yep, yep. Um, and uh, I think supporting institutions helps be it become something very important. I will put in a plug for the Active Guarantee Fund. It's owned by the, Dan the Danish government, the Spanish government, the French, uh, African Development Bank, uh, uh, Nordic Development yep. Fund. Uh, let's build these institutions. Let's let them Absolutely. try. Let's not Absolutely. compete with them. Absolutely. So let's go with them to yep. say, well, maybe you can help us broker these sorts of yes, situations absolutely. and markets you know with people that you work with because this competitive thing is going to be a, a real problem and we're going to be forced in some ways to do those small things and, and which keeps us all busy and it's exciting and we could talk about it, but they continue to be small things. Let's, I see David Stevens here in the August, his monoline idea. Yeah, yeah. You know, it is a tried and proven model that through adaptation, could likely work in, in, in situations that we help mm -hmm. define and, 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 and point out. So throwing our support be behind good ideas, sticking with it, yes. and not from year to year deciding, oh, well, we're going to do this next year, we're going to do that next year. And I'm sitting here, and I just mentioned, when I mentioned this monoline thing, one of the things that we, we did a, a lot of, but not enough of, was in municipal finance, sub-sovereign work. We keep talking about the sovereign stuff. But, you know, the action's happening at the municipal level when we're talking about infrastructure and those kinds of things. And yet, uh, you know, the DFIs have not figured out how to do this yet because they can't operate without a sovereign guarantee. And if you work in a situation where you have a private guarantor working at a sub-sovereign place where there is no recourse to the sovereign, you free up a lot of local resources. You free up the central government to judiciously use its resources to say, well, I've got a million dollars for road this year. 
So you're going to build a million dollars worth of road. Rather than say, I got a million dollars of roads for this year, let's leverage it up exactly. by dealing some things and get $100 million yeah. for roads this exactly. year and start getting these services we promise out. All of that, all of that can happen in a properly structured blended finance deal in which a guarantee would work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we, we're unable to focus. And, and, and all of us that have been in the field here know the most difficult thing in this development stuff is coordination. It is hard. It is a it is a slog, you know, to every day wake up and make sure that this yep. effort, this joint effort, works. We have to dedicate people to that. We can't pull them off to do something else. We have to every day work on how to do that. So I'm not sure if I answered yeah. your question. But you gave me but, much more yeah, than yeah. I anticipated. Look, look, this is all about the implementation. It's how we get it done in the field. There are no templates. And again, I, I really appreciate CDC's deliberate look at this to say, well, where are we going to have the best benefit? How are we going to do it? How are we going to apply our resources within a mix of tools that we have? And again, this mix of tools, the right tool in the right place. Yeah. So, so you know, we're a bunch yeah. of hammers. You, you, you had a tremendous amount there, John, and I want to parcel that out to the various yeah. panelists. Yeah. Uh, first off, you made the point that what we really need to do is think about how we move markets. So that's yeah. going to be our yeah. end question. You yeah. Think yeah. about that for a little yeah. while. Yeah. How do we really yeah. move markets? Yeah. But you talked about syndications. You talked yeah. about a convergence yeah. uh, for the for, for the guarantee area. You talked about municipal finance. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to give those yeah. to yeah. each of you. Municipal finance to you. Well, I, I, I can start there, but I, I do want to I, I do want to follow on because I think one of the other things we need to, to think about because private capital mobilization is what we're all now challenged to do so that we can increase the resource base to, to deal with the world's problems. And so my point is that guarantees go both ways. Sometimes we're the the the, the party you know wielding the guarantee, and sometimes we're being guaranteed. And so I think the, um, the MCPP partnership that the IFC did, the, what OPIC did with, with Liberty Mutual Insurance, where we're creating the platform so that we are doing what we do best, which is going out and finding individual transactions. But then every piece um, of, along the way, every transaction we do, a piece of that is, is guaranteed or insured, credit insurance, however you want to structure it by the private sector. And that's, that's a huge model in terms of streamlining and efficiency and as you say waking up every day and knowing that the next step will happen because we've made it very simple so I think part of part of what has to happen for us to have staying power is, is sim simplification Do you, uh, you want to talk a little bit about yeah, municipal finance? Uh, on, on municipal finance I think you know it's it, it, it's a very important point because you know we are all concerned about debt sustainability and so that means that we've got to you know get below the the, the sovereign and figure out ways to make these deals work. I think intrinsically we, we know that you know if there is a revenue model for the infrastructure that's being built there ought to be a way to finance it but that risk is going to be huge because the um, the, the sub-sovereign is, is unlikely to have the same kind of, of credit rating. So I think that is more the, 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 the perception versus the reality uh, point of view where we, you know, and, and we're the kinds of institutions that ought to be best placed to just jump into the pool because, you know, if the fundamentals make sense and maybe there has to be some blending there in order to make those fundamentals make sense, there's, there's no reason why we shouldn't be able and willing to take that risk as long as there's a private sector revenue model that, that ought to work. And I'd make two other points on this. I mean, one, when we think about 
uh, our own infrastructure in this country it was heavily absolutely. built by the development absolutely. Yeah, the absolutely. market. Yeah. But the other point is when you see what's happening on the governance side in many developing countries, there's a real push for devolution. Yes. And yes. devolution has been something of a mixed bag. But if you have a financial component alongside the political component, I think yeah. you create a self-reinforcing, mutually reinforcing cycle that can help support. Yeah. We're, we're, we're domestic savings um, in pension funds, insurance companies, and so on can become part of your financing and, solution. And where yeah. the sub-sovereigns have to be accountable, not just for, to, exactly. to sometimes exactly. dysfunctional democratic processes, but to financial exactly. accountability exactly. as well. Exactly. Um, Joan, John suggests a convergence for guarantees. <laughs> what do you think about that? Your next gig? No, our next gig or our, our subs <laughs> well, new subsidiary, I don't know. Um, I do think that w what you're hearing from all the panelists is an attention span problem. Uh, you know, the flavor of the day uh, pattern. All of us who've been in development institutions know the new, the new guys come in and suddenly you're not in the ag business, you're in the municipal business, you're not in the guarantee business, you're in the... So we've all lived that cycle. So. Um, the benefit of having an independent actor recording the experience, feeding it back to the field, pointing out the patterns, um, and holding people not accountable. We can't, at Convergence, as a small shop, hold people accountable, but tell them what they're doing in plain English. I think there is a lot of value in that. Um, we have already been, to the extent that we ever advocate, which we are careful about doing, we do advocate for more of a light to be shown on this one product because we think it's underutilized given the patterns of the problems we're seeing. So I do think it needs more of a spotlight. I do think it needs more of a constant attention span. Um, and you're on to something at CDC by shining a light on this. So I don't know whether it's our new gig, but it, it ought to be somebody's permanent gig. And I would also like to put a plug in for doubling down on existing things. So anybody who's got money to deploy out there who really loves this idea, just write a check to, you know, <laughs> uh, to, to Africa Guarantee Facility or somebody. Go find somebody that is working and do more of it. It is a simple entry process rather than creating something new and fancy. Well, I, I think that's a very good point, John, you made, that the children of this process have actually yeah. prospered quite well. And yeah. you know, yeah. we now have to yeah. think about how we yeah. move them from where they are to the billions to trillions, the sort of order of magnitude increase. But it is somewhat gratifying to see that there are a number of these facilities out there that, like you say, are, are, are sort of on their own and, and, and doing well. Do you want to, I mean, since one of those was GrantCo, yeah. do you want to talk a little bit about CDC's experience in terms of creating one of these uh, these baby bells, so to speak. And, uh, <laughs> well, I, I don't, unfortunately, I don't think CDC can uh, take credit for that. I think there's a bit of an irony here that I've uh, ended up paying for a report that looks like a fundraising drive from my friends down the road at Pidge. <laughs> uh, we don't need to, the money. Uh, I'm going to have to ask for a quid pro quo uh, in a bit. I, I'd like to talk about this idea of market creation. And I think that we are um, we're pretty much into the backlash against billions and trillions. And I think that's a bit of a, a straw man, really. I mean, some of us might have let the blood rush to our head on occasion, but really none of us ever pretended that we were going to get the trillions by leveraging off our own balance sheets. But if that was ever going to happen, it was going to happen through market creation and through doing things which got balls rolling and made a bunch of other people do a bunch of other stuff. Uh, and that idea of market creation is very much behind uh, this thing we have at CDC called our catalyst strategies, which is a pool of capital that we have where we have the uh, ability to take more risk. And um, it seems like, I'm, again, plugging CDC stuff, but there's a great example of market creation using guarantees in our Catalyst portfolio, and that is a business called MedAxis. And MedAxis is a wholly owned yeah. subsidiary of um, 
CDC, and what it does is it uh, goes out and it uh, finds uh, opportunity to manufacture a, let's say, a low-cost medical device. It works uh, with the businesses um, helping them do that, and it says if you can make it at this price, we will make sure that this much gets bought. And once we've done that, once you've established that you can make this product for that price and these people will buy it, we walk away. So we're, it's not about trying to kind of directly get money in, it's about getting things rolling and then we can step back. Well, you, ben Access brings up a good point, because we usually think of guarantees as financial sector guarantees. Mm. This is actually a market, uh, a, a, a market guarantee. It's a guarantee for, uh, for sales as opposed to a guarantee for, for markets. And I, I ask everyone on the panel, should we be thinking more broadly about guarantees? Yes, the largest blended finance deal that ever happened was the Gavi Alliance. Yep. Advanced yeah, market absolutely. guarantees, yep. Yep. the promise that if you produce these vaccines, we will buy X units. That is a risk reduction exercise. That is taking the bottom out of a market, you know, placing a floor level on the sides of a market so that people can go do something that's not terribly profitable and otherwise has a huge downside risk. So yeah, I think we need to expand our mind as to what we're talking about. We're talking about guarantees. We're also talking about political risk insurance, by the way. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that maybe doesn't have the label, but which falls into the, into the category of buying risk off a deal. Yeah. And, and I think you know, the, the Gavi um, example is, is excellent, Joan, because what it, what it shows is there, is there is a role for guarantees both in commercial transactions and in non-commercial transactions. And, and there's no shame in that. I mean, I think, you know, if your objective is, you know, very clear and it's a humanitarian or a health objective, um, this, is, this is an appropriate tool for that as well. But I think, you know, some of the confusion about that may create some challenges for, for people thinking about the, the risk. Um, and, and, you know, we have done loan guarantees where we absolutely know that we are going to pay claims. And that is a part of the business model. And we've, you know, we've modeled what percentage um, is going to be paid out in claims. And that's perfectly fine because the other 80% or 90% that we're going to achieve that is going to be successful is definitely worth that. So, you know, you may not get commercial investors to come along in that unless you've got a, a, a huge first loss layer. But it's still a very valid use of the guarantee for a development institution. I might add, you're not going to get DFIs coming in in either, unless there's a successful first loss here. But when I heard when I heard I say, could you come up and do, take our first loss? And I said, take all, take away all your risk. Is what you'd like us to do? You want us to give you grant money, not come in with a yeah. guarantee. So, which leads me to another subject. Which is that? Well, <laughs> I, I think all the. I, I, now I don't think I believe. But all these good ideas are good ideas simply because the DFIs have embraced them so energetically. And they have, in some ways, sort of robbed all of us of the experience to find out what would happen if we were going to directly engage with private capital. Uh, you know, the Canadians, God love them, have written large checks to Asian Development Bank, African Development Bank, IFC, and others because they have a need to get their money out uh, for blended finance. Can I access it as a private investor? Maybe I can go and, and join one of their facilities and have them lead mm -hmm. the investment. But can I come in where I want my name on my investment, I want my control over my investment, speak to pension funds particularly, who have you know, a great obligation to their trustees, both here and abroad. Um, I think, some, I believe somehow or another, we have, to, we have to figure out how to yet again move DFIs 
towards a situation in which the private capital they want to engage and want to mobilize is there at the beginning of the process. It's axiomatic that people support what they help create. Mm -hmm. Rather than creating these things and going out and trying to sell them. I have this great idea. It's true about a guarantee. Dan told me he was going around the world saying, oh, I have a great idea. I want to get a guarantee. Can I, can I Mr. USA Mission Director, get $50,000 of your budget so I can post a guarantee? You know, you're selling. You're not, you're, you're not developing situations in which everybody could come in with what they might be able to come in with, with the kind of comforts that you could provide them through a blended structure, through a guarantee, or something else. So I don't know how we do this or if we're ever going to be able to do it. But it seems to me that it's worth a try. And, I, and I'm not sure if we've done that yet. So we have two DFIs on the stage. Any reactions to John's thought? No good? Well, I, I think, you know, the, it's this age-old question about whether, you know, as at least quasi-government institutions, because not all the DFIs are 100% government-owned, you know, are you going to pick favorites, pick winners, right? And I think this has been the big debate. And, but once we've determined that the only way to achieve our development goals is to do it in concert with the private sector, inevitably you get to your question. And I think we do have to be bold and, and brave about it. And you know, yes, there has to be an open and transparent process for it. But at the end of the day, if we don't incentivize private capital in some of these areas where the risk is just deemed too great, um, we won't make the changes that well, we want. I have a point I'd make on this, then I'd like Patty, you to comment. Then I'm looking out at the audience. We have a whole bunch of people who've been referenced in our discussion, so I want to see if we could give them an opportunity <laughs> to, to, to find as well. But I do think we are at an interesting inflection point where the world I live in, the impact investing world, offers that type of capital that, you know, when I was at OPIC was much more scarce yeah. because yeah. the more financial corporate capital, you know, they, they were they were much less willing to sort of co-create these right. types of vehicles than, of right. course, you know, my the, peers and my moment. colleagues. Yes, you know, absolutely. basically that's what right. that's what and that's, that's why equity is so important, right? Yes. Uh, equity and grants mean the most <laughs> flexible capital that that exists. And as you say, Joan, you can't guarantee something that doesn't exist yet. And in many parts of the markets that we're in, in the, the lower-income countries, you're going to start relatively small, except for the odd, you know, power plant or water treatment plant or something. Um, and so that's where equity and grant capital and TA are so critical. Any other thoughts on this, Patty? So I'm not sure what I'm about to say is going to work for uh, pension funds, particularly, or that kind of investor. But this idea of getting people in at the um, beginning takes me back to the idea that the real problem we have is the shortage of good investment opportunities. And that's why we're, we try and mobilize capital. It's about us having conversations uh, with, with uh, sometimes quite large firms to say, well, do you know what, actually with a bit of your support and a bit of encouragement, we could do something in this market that we wouldn't have done. And that's not the traditional yep. DFI yep. demand-led model, that's a bit more entrepreneurial. And I think that's the way that we all have uh, to go. I absolutely agree with you that you know, we can't forget the supply side of this equation. That there, there needs to be high-quality yep. projects if yep. we're going to be able to deploy the type of capital we're talking about. Any questions? Here, why don't we take a round of three and uh, run some answers and then another round. So here, David, and any others? Otherwise, I have plenty more. Barbara Samuels, Global Clearinghouse for Development Finance. Um, last year, the African Go Guarantee Platform, this sounds obvious, the African Co Guarantee Platform was launched at the African Investment Forum. The five participants, the African Development Bank, ISIC, part of the Islamic Development Bank, Gorenko, 
um, Afra XM Bank um, have all done through 2018 gross, because they leverage a lot through the private sector, over $8 billion of guarantees and insurance, of which $5 billion is long-term. Now, to John's point, you know, to what degree is that coordination or individually sourced? It's very much individually sourced, but right now I'm working on the business plan. It's going to be discussed at the upcoming African Investment Forum, November 11th in Johannesburg. But this is terrific, what you guys are doing, and we just need to do it. As John said, my hero as ever, that we really need to coordinate and push and be brave and bold. And a lot of the issues, like the monolines, David, is David here? Yeah, he's right there. Oh my God, I mean, look at, what was it, 11 years? How many million dollars did you put into that? It must break your heart to hear this, what? Yeah. That's right. So, I mean, here we have the issue. What is wrong with us? We have had champions with actionable vehicles to do this stuff, and yet we didn't get it done. Meanwhile, we have Nigeria Intracredit. There's going to be, with the support of the PIDGE and with uh, Cardano, one in Egypt, Pakistan, there's another ones. But those are, Nigeria Infocredit only got two deals done so far. We're not getting to scale. So, you know, we really need the championship of everybody here to really break through and um, make it simple, your point, sub-sovereign, climate actions. We can do a lot of that through project finance structures, project preparation facilities, how we really integrate that because so often we can't do a deal because it really needs a lot of help. And um, I should mention here that the African Union is very much behind this. We have the African Infrastructure Guarantee Mechanism that was presented last year at NASDAQ and AUDA NEPAD as the development agency for the African Union. Um, I'm working with them and the participants in the platform. And so we're really interested in support and creative, actionable, simple ideas to get it done. But let's do it. Thank Thanks you. Thanks a lot. Let's let David also yeah. uh, uh, comment since he had his hand up and has now been referenced a few times. Okay, well, thanks. Um, I have a few things to say. You. I'll try to be quick. Uh, thank you. Uh, just tell you a little bit. Of, sorry? Yeah, I'm David Stevens. Um, I used to run one of these financial guarantee monoline firms. Um, I ran one from 1999 to 2004. During that period, uh, I closed the first uh, local currency infrastructure deal done in the emerging markets. Uh, we did $60 billion of guarantees with very, very low losses, maintained AAA ratings. Our industry, since 1994 through the present, has done 223 emerging market deals with nine basis points of loss totaling $43 billion. So we know how to do this business. It can be done uh, with very good success and very low losses. Here's a couple of points I want to leave you with. Uh, one, when I ran into John, who's the first person, thank you John, in the DFI world who ever said yes to me, and a million no's, but I really, really remember you very fondly for that. He looked at me and he said, oh, there's Mr. Monoline. That's sort of like walking up to Ronan Farrow and saying, there's Mr. Me Too. Harvey <laughs> Weinstein is Mr. We Too, uh, Me Too, and uh, Ronan Farrow is a guy who is Mr. I'm not part of that. I, I expose that. 
The monoline business model has uh, succeeded in the emerging markets, but it failed in the United States, and it has a terrible name. So one thing we should stop doing is talking about monolines <clears throat> and talking about guarantors. And guarantors should have a couple of lines of business that are like the old monoline business, like trade credit. So that's one point. The second point is that this is a very big ticket business. A typical infrastructure deal is three or four hundred million dollars. To do a three or four hundred million dollar deal, you need about a billion dollar company. You, the ideal size for a guarantor is two billion dollars in capital. I'm starting at 500 million and expect to grow that to uh, two billion over a period of 10 years. I once ran a financial projection. What if you had 500 million dollars and ran it for 30 years, which you should be able to do because it's a financial institution, not a fund. You would do $330 billion of development finance with that one company. And after you got to about a $3 billion level, you would actually dividend all the excess capital back. In other words, you wouldn't actually be using that capital. If you used all that capital, it'd probably be over a trillion dollars. So this is a big so ticket business. billions to trillions right there. Yeah. It's a big ticket business. You need uh, uh, people who can write big checks. Right now, I'm trying again after 15 years for the third time. The first time we raised 300 million and we couldn't launch because the global financial crisis intruded. The second time, we raised 745 million, including contributions from four DFIs. And S&P uh, refused to honor its criteria to generate an A rating. This time, we're not going to use the big three rating agencies. We're going to use local emerging market-based rating agencies. Uh, and I, I think we solved that problem. And we're talking to five big investors right now. When I say big, I mean really big. Two of them have hundreds of billions of dollars of assets under management. We need your help. Here's a chance to make collaboration and blended finance work. Boy, would it be powerful if I could say to these $100 billion investors, I've got four DFIs that I met last week in Washington, D.C., who want to work through us. And if you did work through us, we would be able to channel your money where you want it. You want to put your money into Latin America only? We can do that. You want to put your money into green projects only? We can do that. You want to put your, project, your money into lower income countries only? We can do that too. So I don't want to keep you any more time, but I, I just thought I'd lay out a couple of those thoughts. We would welcome well, well, the opportunity I, to work I, with I, you. I think there are, uh, there, there are two issues there. I, I want to give the panel a chance to respond to this, and then I, uh, Mark will go to you in the back, and, that, that'll, and then we'll, we'll finish up. But just two, two issues. One is, if you had the capacity to, to guarantee that much volume, would we in fact have that much in projects? And where would we potentially find them? Uh, that, would, that, that was uh, one point that I'd like to, to get the sense of the panel. And two, from Patty and Mildred, you know, John sort of says he's ready to, to, to yeah, mobilize. Yeah. You know, can, you, can you answer his call? But anyone on the panel want to take one of those two? What, what is the constraint that's stopping uh, people doing more deals? Where, where it, uh, one of the most creative ideas in here, and honestly, I can't tell you uh, what I make of it, is, is um, this idea of uh, domestic governments setting up a guarantee fund in which they say to project developers, I know that you're 
worried that we're going to change our mind and um, you know uh, waste you know two years of your time and we're going to guarantee you that we won't change our mind. We're going to offer you guarantees against our own mis future misbehaviour. Uh, uh, it's, it's a very innovative idea. Yeah. It might be what gets a bit more uh, things off the ground. Um, I can also think of some potential concerns with it, but I, I'm delighted to see that they're going right at the problem uh, yeah. in this report. Uh, this is many years ago. Uh, John introduced us to some public finance people from J.P. Morgan. John spent, started out, he didn't start out there, but when he worked in Massachusetts on public finance things, he started a discussion in aid about pool facilities, about uh, revolving funds, and about things that uh, you know, are well established here. And we did them. Uh, the Philippines today, has, we did a great blended deal. We had $250 million from JBIC. We did guarantees on local raises, and we got I think it took a while to get off the ground, but we got close to a billion dollars worth of public finance going in the Philippines on a blended structure, all because one day we got to meet some people that said this is how it works. So I appreciate it. But that stands alone. This is back where we're at again. That stands alone. It took seven years to pull that thing off. Seven years of highly focused work. It worked, and right now people are starting to talk about it. So it's what, 12 years out? Mm -hmm. Something like that. Um, this, this focus, this, this, uh, this adherence to an idea to push it towards its you know, fullest possible potential uh, lies at the core of anything that we're going to do that's going to gain any lasting success. Um, I hope I'm articulating that enough. And I'm, I keep looking at Dan wondering if I'm not being controversial enough. <laughs> and uh, I, don't, I don't think I can be. Don't I think. Don't yourself. Yeah, yeah well. <laughs> um, but, you know, for, for goodness sake, I mean, let's try it. I mean, uh, let's try it. Let's take a look at our portfolios today, pick from them the things that work, and let's shop it out. But, there are projects. But I do think you know? that's, that's one issue we, we yeah. didn't talk too much about, which I, we, we could go another hour on, yeah. so we're not going to delve too deeply into another it paper. Now. But this issue of implementation issues and the, the transaction costs that's that these things require, and I do think that's where a convergence for guarantees could be very helpful in terms of figuring out how to streamline the, the, the legal and the regulatory processes to get to keep turn that seven years into yes. 18 months yeah, or yeah. two yes. years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I guess I just one, one more thing to add to the equation that, you know, we, we heard our UNDP friends talking about how these guarantees are going disproportionately to the upper uh, middle income countries. You know, David's model is going to require a lot of that infrastructure to be in those upper middle income countries. So the question is whether, you know, all of us um, as institutions are, are headed one way and the, and the market still has big gaps to fill in another direction. So, I mean, it's a challenge we're going to have to address. Although I would argue in a world where we're facing a lot of global challenges, you know, green infrastructure in upper, in upper middle income countries is not a net negative and potentially if you can use these tools to do that, you free up more, more of your tools to focus on the places where, where greater yeah. market yeah. capacity building yeah. needs to happen. Yeah. Just quick. make one quick comment, though. Of that $43 billion that I described, a very small proportion of that was in investment trade countries. Admittedly, none of it was in Mali. Yeah. yeah. But there were a lot of people that was done in countries like Guatemala, Kazakhstan, Egypt. This product has, uh, the financial guarantee product we've developed has application in lower income countries, we need development bank assistance to
to help broaden that in those countries. Absolutely. Yeah. Mark, then whoever's behind you, and then the back. Uh, say who you are, if, if you... Mark Stuckert, uh, formerly OPEC, and I was one of the founders of the financial guarantee industry in the United States, MBIA and AMBAC. Good to see all colleagues. Um, most recently, the last two years, in the Commerce Department, uh, China has come with a totally different model. China, there was an article in the past week in uh, the Wall Street Journal, American Enterprise Institute, they've done $2 trillion in Africa in the past 20 years. The numbers that we have here are just so minuscule. The new model that China has, it's a brilliant model. They're going after the <coughs> sovereign credit with guarantees. Sinosure, which is their government-owned political and credit risk insurer, uh, is now, by some accounts, the largest insurance company in the world. We are pushing a model with private sector, and it's a very difficult model. It's a better model long-term, but short-term, China is just killing us. They're hammering us. And the numbers we're talking about are just minuscule. MEGA has created a very interesting model, and maybe Edie Quintrell might want to talk a little bit about it, but they will provide a full guarantee. They copied my product, the non-owning of sovereign guarantee, very successfully. Um, they, um, and then they feed it out to the reinsurance world. What we haven't talked about is the private sector political risk insurers. Lloyds of London, last time I looked, had 27 individual separate syndicates writing financial guarantees yep. via political risk insurance. Uh -huh. That needs to be tapped. But the whole idea here is to get some numbers on the board. When I was looking at Africa, China has now developed 16 separate financing vehicles just for Africa. Uh, they're, they're just running circles around us. They're five steps ahead in a chess game. Uh, so it, it, how, do we, how do we come up with something that's going to work? Uh, Sino Hydro's done 75 hydro projects in Africa, all with sovereign guarantees. That alone, that one Chinese state-owned enterprise uh, has done perhaps five times as much as our entire Power Africa program. Um, here, why don't we take these three and then we'll, we'll, we'll comment. Hi, uh, Shirin Jamshidi. I'm an investment officer with DCA, soon to be DFC. Um, so it's great to hear your thoughts around um, building the capacity, local capacity. You all talked about it, that it's important. would be here to, great to hear how you go about building that. And uh, the big component for that where I see is a challenge is actually DFI's patience with that. They do the first round of guarantee and they hope for the best. They don't want to come for the second or the third round. And as Dan mentioned earlier, it's because it's no longer shiny. Um, so how do you go about building the patience within the DFI community so that they would want to come to the table, maybe think about creating a more, um, lessening the percentage that's covered or other ways, but they still come to the table to help the local capacity to be, uh, to be built. So that's And then in the consider. far back. Okay, uh, my name is Samuel Lukbata. I was at OPEC with Mildred and other guys for 11 years, and I just recently left and joined a small firm who's trying to be very creative and innovative in terms of bringing guarantees that we're talking about from to cover the private investors as well as to fund infrastructure projects. 
But the key thing that we ran into, and which I basically observed throughout my time at OPEC, it's timing in terms of from application to any of the DFIs, whether it's a guarantee or a project financing, to closing and disbursements, right? These things can take forever. Usually and typically, the opportunity would have been lost, right? So how do you plan to, in terms of developing all these innovative, creative financial instruments, how do you plan to execute it so that the projects are started and completed on time and to achieve the benefits that the projects are targeted to? So, so there are three big themes here. Um, I see, John, you're rearing at the bit, so I'll give you, get to you in a second. But the, one is China, one is local capacity building, and one is, is, is managing the timing. So I'll ask each of you to respond. You can pick any one of those, but also please discuss the, the, the point I mentioned before, which is what is the one thing we could do to really move markets, which I think is related to a lot of this. But John? You know, while I was listening to you, Mark, all it kept going in my mind is local currency, local currency, local currency, mobilizing the wealth in the countries we're working with. That just kept going there in my mind. We are not going to compete with China. We are not going to be able to pile on more sovereign guarantees at incredibly high levels, which are going to, which in the end, you know, are going to cripple those governments. Those obligations are going to keep them away from a lot of other possibilities that come along. Ah, I'm sorry, I'm over leveraged. You know, I'm into the Chinese. How are we going to compete with that? I'll tell you how we compete with that. And again, it's going to be a slow and steady uh, battle. We are going to, I think, take a developmental point of view and put the future of these countries in their own hands, little by little by little. And I think that if we figure out, we find avenues for investment, ways to risk share at the local level, to mobilize that $50 billion in Kenyan pension funds and other things in their own countries with their own resources, and to free them up from the kinds of things they had from years from World Bank financing and things like that. You know, you go to Paris once a year, what happens there? All this stuff gets renegotiated, the can gets kicked down the road. So let's focus locally. Let's try to and say, oh, it's not enough money, but you know, let's get it working. Let's show that it can work. Let's show that money can be made. Let's try and make opportunities available locally so capital flight doesn't happen like it has in the past. And let's unburden these governments from these obligations and their earnestness and eagerness to get all this stuff done today. Sure, I'm gonna take the Chinese money. You know, sure, I'm going to do that. Let's see how this works out over time. I'm going to take the football stadium. I'm going to, we're not going to do that. You know, our DFIs aren't going to do that. The World Bank's not going to do that. You know, and it just seems to me that, you know, if we focus on the development business here, which is the business we're in, you know, I don't know, anybody here from J.P. Morgan? I don't think so. You know, we're in the business of helping countries develop their economies so they can be you know, decision makers in their own future. I think that's the beauty of the monoline thing because each negotiated arrangement in the country is a proxy for, you know, reform and capital market structures. So let's, let's try to be modest in our approach, but focused in what we're doing it for. You know, again, to put, to build the capacity on the ground in countries so their own future can be decided by their own good decisions or bad decisions over time. I mean, that's the business we're in. You know, and, and, and I think that is why we need these institutions. And that is why they need to be local. That is why they need to be supported by all of us. And that is why we shouldn't be doing this. Should not be, should not be just in competition with that, yeah. but supplement, yeah. supplemented to it. 
And I think that th that is the best thing we could do. Now, I'm in my 70s now. I'm not going to do it. Maybe these young people that said they're in DCA are going to be, be doing those things. But for goodness sake, let's not take our eye off the ball because the big picture is so daunting. Agreed, yeah. 100%. Mildred? Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe I'll address the, uh, the the question about how do we how do we stick with it rounds two and three because I do think it's a very um, important issue and you know I will I will say that I think one of the challenges and it's one that we've self created in many ways is this concept of additionality <laughs> um, and we convince ourselves that coming back for round two or round three is not additional. I mean, you know, maybe the fault is that we're not making the case well enough for why it is additional, but it is a stumbling block. Many, many projects have died on the altar of additionality. Yeah. Um, and, and we have to get over it because you, you don't achieve scale with a one-shot approach. Um, it takes multiple, multiple rounds. And as you say, we, we've got to iterate as we go. We've got to continue to do market soundings to make sure that there now aren't other players that could take our role. But we have to be, be willing uh, to take the heat um, in, in the name of actually achieving these big, big broader goals. John? I have an impractical suggestion. So uh, you talked about building markets, John. Our ex-OPIG colleague, colleague spoke about the slow speed of these international institutions. And our DCA colleague talked about the lack of stick-to-itiveness. Is that a word? Mm -hmm. um, so if I ran a DFI, which is a frightening thought, if I ran a DFI, I might suggest a redefinition of what is a project that an investment officer has to get done. If you imagine a project being, we are going to change how something happens in, pick a country, Malawi. We're going to make a systemic change, back to your point. And your project definition is you're going to do the first project, but you are on the hook for this much capital mobilized domestically over the next four years. Yep. Do whatever you can to make that happen, whether it's project number two or getting the heck out of it so the local market takes off on its own. But we're going to measure your job in the end of three years, two years, pick your time span. And that's the metric we're going to look at. That's the yardstick we're going to use. The project definition is Malawi's capital market grew by X percent or there were at least five syndications in the local market and local currency in this time frame, as opposed to you wrote checks for $100 million and you yeah. have that on your deal sheet. Right. So I it's think that's practical great. because that's I don't great. run a DFI, that's but that, that's sort of where we need to go. Patty, you do. You're in a DFI. You don't run it. It comes right there. So um, I'm not going to be able to give you a good answer on the, uh, the timing thing. I'm not close enough to the operations side. Um, I certainly hear our... Uh, fund managers talk about the fact that, um, sorry, after you work with fund managers, that you know you need to stay in there in order to the third fund because your additionality is not just catalyzing that first fund, it's making sure that this thing gets up and it's running and it's, it's self-sustaining and it's ready to go and if you pull out too early you have um, uh, not done that. And I'm, I'm not going to go anywhere near geopolitical uh, 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 China questions, but um, I, I, I do wonder how what we can do to uh, scale up ambition from a development uh, point of view. I'm going to sound like a bit of a, a, a hippie now, but I mean, right now the Swedish um, uh, steel producer is trialing hydrogen blast furnaces. And if those work, it's our job to make sure that those are installed in every single steel producer as quickly as we can. Um, and that's going to, that's not, again, that's not going to be demand led. That's going to be us having to go out there and knocking on doors and saying, 
Um, we want to get these into your business, and that's, that's just one technology. There's going to be tons. We need the VFIs to be uh, capable of taking uh, commercialization risk and all sorts of things, and I, I don't know whether we're ready to do that. So I think that there are yeah. lots of more ambitious things we could be yeah. thinking of yeah. um, from the development can, can I just add one thing to it? I think Joan's really thoughtful comment, because we, we live in two worlds in the development community. Some of us are in the development world to solve problems. Some of us got into the development world to do deals. And in between, in between, there is a sweet spot. And I think, you know, Joan is helping us think about what, what that is, that it's, it's still, the tool is still working project by project, but having an objective and a goal that is still practical, it's not pie in the sky, it's achievable, and you do it by a series of projects, and you, you give yourself permission to be a little more creative. Yeah, I think what I'm taking from here is if we really want to make markets, we can't just operate on one lever. We have to bring a number of these levers together. Yes, we need the transactions and yes. we need the, those deals, but we also need the market building and, the, and the, the, the local financial market building and deal development side of the equation to come together. Yeah. And we need the coordination and the organizational uh, 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 infrastructure that allows that to happen instead of focusing on just these stove pipes. Or, or, or dollar volumes. And, 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 uh, we, I'm trying to bring this to an end, John, because we're five minutes over, but <laughs> last word. But just the right tool to the problem. Yes. yes. You know, and just. And sometimes it's more than one tool. Exactly. So we could obviously keep going for another hour or so, but I think years, I years. see people at the door <laughs> trying to kick us out or something. So thank you to this panel. I think they all deserve a very big round of applause. And thank you all.